everyone and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay and I'm the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. Um, with every show I always like to introduce ourselves because we're always getting new listeners so I'm just going to keep you for a, a brief moment here before we get into our show. Alzheimer's Speaks, uh, for those of you that are new to us, is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort worldwide. And we believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we're going to be able to remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living with the disease continue to live with purpose. Together, I think we can help one another understand the true needs and and help remove the myths and the isolations um, that just causes so much crisis for family and friends and community at like. Um, at our core, we believe that collaboratively is the only way we're going to win our battle against dementia. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about our guests today, because they really seem to have um, embraced the, the true collaboration that is needed. And we're going we're gonna to be talking about that later today. Um, for us here at Alzheimer's Speaks, you guys have just been raving fans of ours, and we so appreciate it. You see, without you, there's no way we would have um, become the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, according to Share Care and Dr. Oz. It really isn't what we're doing. It's what you're doing. It's taking those couple of seconds to click and like and share the information because all of our circles, all of our Facebook friends, our LinkedIn colleagues, our Twitter tribes, you know, our Pinterest pals out there are dealing with this. Most of them just aren't talking about their journey with dementia because they don't feel that it's safe. And the more information we can get out there, the more likely they're going to reach out and grab it when the time is right for them. So keep in mind, every time you share information, when you like something regarding Alzheimer's dementia, if it's Alzheimer's Speaks or whoever, you are, you are giving hope to the world. And so, again, I just thank you so much for your diligence in um, taking part and making a difference and being part of the collaboration that's here to change the world. I'd also like to invite you, if you're interested in being part of our show, I'd love to talk to you. Um, everyone's voice is equally heard on, on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. So if you are a person diagnosed, maybe you're a person thinking you should get diagnosed. Maybe you're a family member caring for someone or a business who has devised a service, a product, a tool. Maybe you've written a book, a song, a movie. Um, you're, maybe you're doing some research. We would love to hear from you. Because, again, together we can make a difference. Um, each of us is a spark that can light somebody else's campfire and get them going and make them realize um, their strengths are important and they really, truly can make a difference um, in the world of dementia. 
I want to give a shout out to um, Fresh Books, uh, who is one of our sponsors here. And you can actually go to um, gofreshbooks.com forward slash alive and get a free 30-day trial. Um, you know, tax time passed, but I'm sure some of you out there have done some extensions and are still working on uh, getting organized or just, you know, made a commitment to get more organized for next year. So check out Fresh Books. Again, you can go to www.gofreshbooks.com forward slash alive and get that three um free 30-day trial. You can also get a free 30-day trial by going to audible.com. They have um, like 180,000 selections that you can choose from. And to get your free Audible book, um, go to audibletrial.com forward slash social. So let's go ahead and get started um, with our conversation here today. Like I said, I, I'm so excited to have um, these group of, of individuals who have really come together, um, such visionaries. Um, we're going to be speaking with uh, the founders of Us Against Alzheimer's, again, with some of their key leaders um, and we're going to do a two-hour special because they just have so much going on. We can't, we just can't get her done in an hour. So, um, really excited to have them on. I first would like to introduce George Vredenberg, and he's the chairman of Us Against Alzheimer's, um, which he co-founded in October of. Uh, 2010 with his wife, Trish. Uh, George was named by the U.S. Health and Human Service Secretary to serve on the Advisory Council on Research, Care, and Services established by the National Alzheimer's Plan Act. And for those of you that don't know what that is, uh, a lot of times you'll hear it referred to as NAPA. But they really are our nation's go-to in terms of um, pushing things forward here um, with Alzheimer's and dementia. George himself has actually testified before Congress about the global Alzheimer's pandemic, and um, he's a member of the World Dementia Council. Um, George and Us Against Alzheimer's have also worked really closely with uh, leaders engaged on Alzheimer's disease, um, which is a coalition, and it's known as LEAD, L-E-A-D, uh, which is quite powerful in and of itself. And also, the, he is the Global CEO um, Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease. Um, like I said, George and his wife, Trish, have just been such dedicated members um, to this movement, and they are really well-known um, civic leaders um, out in Washington. Um, George is uh, chairman of the board for the Philip Collection, the trustee of the University of the District of Columbia, and a member of the Council of the Foreign Relations um, and the Economic Club in Washington. He has served in senior executive and lead legal positions for both CBS, Fox, and AOL Time Warner, and um, is just moving and shaking the ground that we walk on. So welcome, George. How are you today? Fine, Laurie. Thank you for doing what you're doing and raising awareness and destigmatization of this disease. Well, you know, I, I can't not do it. You know, after living my mom's journey for 30 years, which is more than half of my life, um, you know, I, I just, there's no way I couldn't do what I'm doing. Um, she was just such a, an inspiration um, to help me 
you know, make changes that, that she made me aware of I didn't even know existed. And um, I think like so many of us, we are touched personally, um, you know, by this disease to come together and um, work collaboratively and, and just reach out to one another. So thank you again for joining us. I'm going to also introduce your, your wife, Trish, here. Um, Trish is the vice chair of Us Against Alzheimer's, and she began her career in Washington, D.C. as a speechwriter in the U.S. Senate. And, uh, boy, I'd love to have a sideline conversation on the politics going on today in the speechwriters. <laughs> um, but, but we won't go there today. Um, Trish has written for various television shows, which uh, a couple of my favorites here, Designing Women, Family Ties, Kate and Allie. Um, she also has a novel called The Liberated Lady. And um, she um, most recently um, also um, did a play um, called Surviving Grace, um, which is kind of a quasi-autobiographical, I can't say the word, biographical play, which she produced and was at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., and also off-Broadway at Union Square um, it's now being performed in various community theaters throughout the country, as well as uh, Portuguese. And, and um, so pretty exciting stuff. So welcome, Trish. Thank you so much. Well, Thank you really for what you're doing. Well, I am, like the I said, job. I am so thrilled to uh, to have you both with us. And I'm going to start out um, uh, by throwing my first question to Trish. And that is, you know, what the heck got you to start Us Against Alzheimer's? Trish, yeah. uh, you know, usually Certainly just... I didn't know anything about it when we, you know, when my mom in 1987 was diagnosed. Um, but as a you know, just a background for her. My mom was just so much larger than life, which I I know every mother is to their daughter, but she was amazing. I mean, she could capture a room just by entering it. She was um, politically active um, in, well, in so many things, head of uh, New Jersey Multiple Sclerosis, Garden State Ballet, and giving credit for winning the state of New Jersey for JFK. Um, as a result, she was named to Nixon's enemy list, and I'm very proud to say that. Um, so she was like, she was invincible, this woman. I mean, nothing could stop my mom, um, but of course, she was no match for Alzheimer's. And at the beginning, it wasn't, you know, easy to get her to see a doctor. Um, my mom would say, forget it, doctors kill you. You show me a person who's just died, I'll show you a doctor not 10 feet away. <laughs> she was right, um, but unfortunately, denial didn't stop the progression. So I watched helplessly as this lioness of a woman descended into the you know unforgiving vortex of Alzheimer's. Um, and I, we, m- my husband was equally in love with her, um, knew that we had to do something to help stop this murderer. So in you know 2010. Um, my husband and I started us against Alzheimer's. The only thing my husband has ever failed in, in fairness is retirement. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have been working. I mean, I was exhausted just listening to your description of them. Um, but, you know, we, we started actually with um, the Alzheimer's Association and we started the, um, the, gal- the National Gala for um, Alzheimer's, the Alzheimer's Association. And in the eight years we were there, we 
you know, we raised like, uh, I think $10 million, but it, it just, it wasn't really enough for us. Um, it was, you know, a once a year event and, um, we needed more. We needed, we needed to do more to get it done. We, we just had, for me and for my husband, um, more passion and urgency. I'm, um, I, we just, you know, this, we're running for time as you are, as anyone who has this is, has this in their family. And, um, we, we wanted to be able to go, go to senators and Congress people and shake them up. And I, you know, I had no fear because I, they pretty much couldn't fire me. <laughs> um, and I would like the, uh, both of us, you know, we're outside that door and we got in um, because we are politically active and just always were stating our case. And so I think my husband raised a lot of money in terms of Congress. I went from like $600 million to $950 billion in the last five years. Um, I'm not saying it was all us, but we have been given credit by a lot of key players, you know, including uh, the former uh, NIH uh, head. So, you know, and, and we just keep going because this is not something, it just wasn't possible to not do it. Mm-hmm. And so with you, I mean, we're trying to get people the awareness you know, that, that say the AIDS people, the HIV AIDS population did. That's what we've got to, you know, get. And it's a harder, it's a harder pull because, you know, Alzheimer's people cannot speak for themselves. We, we are their voice. Yep. And I think that people who take care of them are just exhausted, you know, so, so it's hard to, to mobilize. And I, um, here I'm just regurgitating all of this. So I, you know, I read the. I, I've always been an obituaries reader, mm-hmm. and um, my my dad used to say he would get up in the morning and read the obituaries. If his name wasn't there, he'd go to work. So you know, I have it in my blood. And no one, well, we go day after day after day. I said I say to my husband all the time, look, no one died from Alzheimer's today or this week or mm-hmm. this month. I mean, you know, when I read the Times. Because they're still hiding out, yeah. You know, you know when and when so, my mom um, died, we actually, and I, to our knowledge, this was the first one done. But um, we had the purple angel symbol put in her a bit, just to raise awareness and then to talk a little bit about it, um, because it was such a big part of her life. It was such a big part of our life. But you know, there's a lot of people that put symbols in, but you know. Or talk about what or why, and and what a what a great conversation piece, you know, to to really be able to raise awareness and let them know this disease does kill, you know, yes, this this they have disease to make their lives stand, and their death really mm-hmm. stand for something. Yeah, I mean, they put in about my mom that she died of pneumonia, and that may have been the end cause, mm-hmm. but I said, no, you got to you got to eliminate that because my mother died 
from complications or as a result of Alzheimer's. I was a strong lady before. Yeah, but they had that for my mom, too. And I, I said, you know, in this day and age, my gosh, you can add multiple lines onto that death certificate of what contributed to the death. I mean, that, that's a 15-minute fix for any tech person. You know, there's just really no excuse for that at this at this point and so it's you know but we have to have those conversations the other thing that i really like that you talked about you know your mom really being invincible until until this disease and i felt really strongly what you know when you were describing your mom i'm like that's my mom too <laughs> you know i well i bet she is you're a strong lady i bet so you know i mean you have to feel that i mean yeah. those of us who are gifted lucky to have a mother like that Mm-hmm. You know, can't really let it go. My mother always said, you cannot leave this lifetime without doing something important, mm-hmm. you know. So I think she's still nudging me. Yeah, well, uh-huh. I know mine is. Now, I was going to ask you, you know, what the difference is in, in your organization versus others. But I'm going to spit something out to you and see see if I have it on the mark. Because when you were talking, what I heard was the passion. The passion to make the change. This isn't just, this isn't a job. This isn't, you know, you're, you're not driven by a paycheck and benefits and, and the perception of doing good. You are, you know, you've been through the trenches, in the trenches, and, yeah. and are still there with the people going, we can do better. And, and to me, that's what I see us against Alzheimer's positioning themselves is really um, the the passion and the power of of people who really get it. Well, that that's true, and you know when you say we don't get paid, mm-hmm. we pay for all the overhead. I tell my kids all the time. Mm-hmm. So we're spending your inheritance, but at least you live. <laughs> uh, so, so they think it's a reasonable trade off. Mm-hmm. George can tell you more about what you know differences. Okay, Georgie. George, you want to add on to that? No, I, I think uh, Tricia obviously expresses uh, it uh, more eloquently than I. But in 2010, you know, her mother had been diagnosed almost 25 years before, uh, and it seemed as if nothing had changed. Uh, you know, there didn't seem to be any movement forward, any trajectory, any momentum, any uh, energy uh, of any kind. Uh, there weren't any drugs seemingly, uh, you know, on the horizon. Uh, and uh, it, it seemed to us uh, as if uh, uh, we just needed a jolt. Uh, and you put it so well, Lori. It is this, this, this organization is driven by people who have been personally touched. Uh, the other two co-founders, uh, Meryl Comer, uh, has been caring for her husband at home for over 20 years now uh, and now has been taking care of her mother in the same home uh, for t- over five years. So she has at her home... Uh, and she covers sort of the uh, sort of the, uh, the the midnight to eight shift um, uh, uh, herself every single day for the last twenty some years. I mean, that is a person who has been not personally does not have the disease, uh, but who has been a caregiver for someone with a disease. And what you learn very quickly in talking to her is that the impact on the caregiver is a second-hand victim of this disease. Uh, the second the caregiver is suffering the stress, the so caregiver is stressing anxiety, even physical impairments as a result of trying to lift and, and do other things uh, to take care of their loved one. Uh, and their own health uh, begins to go downhill. 
uh, and as we know now from statistics, uh, the uh, likelihood that a caregiver uh, will get Alzheimer's is somewhat higher uh, than the regular population because of the stress and anxiety. The fourth co-founder, uh, John Dwyer, close friend, uh, but whose Irish family, quite large in nature, is just riddled uh, uh, for to the two generations above him uh, with Alzheimer's. And so aunts and uncles uh, have been affected, grandparents have been affected, and he knows uh, that history is telling him uh, that by the time he turns, goes into his late 60s, uh, he is likely to contract the disease. So these are people uh, in different ways and different shapes who've been affected by the disease. Jill Lesser, who I know you're going to have on this call a little later, uh, has recently begun to devote a great deal of time uh, to the cause here, uh, the women's cause. Uh, she is a, a sandwich generation mother. She is a mother who uh, has Alzheimer's, and she has three young, very vigorous, very active uh, uh, sons. And so uh, the organization is driven uh, by heart, by passion, uh, and as I said uh, earlier, uh, by hate or by love, depending on your perspective. Hate for the disease, uh, love for uh, the family members who have been affected by it. Uh, so uh, it is that sense of personal ownership, the feel of the sense of personal responsibility to do something uh, that, that has really brought us uh, uh, into, into this field and now virtually making it uh, almost 100% what we're going to do with the rest of our lives, aside from time with kids and grandkids. <laughs> now, George, what do you think it's going to take to really move the science forward um, so that we get a cure or get something that actually, you know, for sure slows it down and, and um, is trackable? Well, uh, there are a number of uh, different flavors of the science, uh, but the net across all those flavors is we need more resource and we need more sharing, more collaboration. So in the basic science, how do we really understand the full uh, pathogenesis, the full history of what causes this disease? We need more research uh, investments, uh, which are both public and philanthropic. Um, there is the, the science of how you take the insights from uh, knowing uh, what is the cause and course of this disease, and then uh, beginning to identify new molecules that can actually interfere uh, with that uh, that pathogenesis pathway of the disease, hit it uh, and stop it. Uh, so that translational uh, process is actually a process that is largely invested in by venture capitalists, uh, but where because of the time, cost, and risk of getting things to market, venture capital is very thin. Uh, so s new innovative private uh, capital uh, mechanism, venture capital mechanisms uh, are needed in that space, as well as some public uh, finance. And then there's finally there's clinical science, actually putting a candidate new molecule into humans and testing to see whether it works, whether it is safe, and whether it is effective against uh, the target that you're trying to hit. So there are a variety of flavors of that. And on the latter one, clinical uh, science, we need more collaboration uh, and we need uh, more resource as well. So resource and sharing, I think, are the uh, two main um, contributions that we need in order to advance the science more rapidly. Okay. 
Great. Now, related to that science, um, what exactly, um, you know, and how exactly is Us Against Alzheimer's, you know, pushing that forward in terms of, of resources and science? Well, uh, certainly on the basic science, we push forward by uh, our politics, which is to mobilize the American people uh, and any number of Alzheimer's-serving organizations across the country uh, in bringing attention to members of Congress the importance of uh, uh, dealing with this disease, both in terms of the scope and scale of human suffering by American families, uh, but also because of the economics, where we're spending less than a billion dollars a year on research but the country and American families are sustaining over $226 billion a year in cost. Uh, any CEO who had a $226 billion uh, cost problem was only spent investing a billion dollars to try to avoid it would be fired. Uh, so we are being pretty active in, 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 in Congress. And, of course, the billion dollars are actually less than a billion dollars invested annually in Alzheimer's has been doubled in the last five years, but still uh, cancer... Um, has invested about $6 billion, and you see cancer deaths going down. Uh, you see Alzheimer's deaths going up. So investment uh, makes a difference. Um, in the translational space, we worked with the U.K. government and with a number of companies to create a, what will, at the end of this year, be a $200 million venture capital fund uh, that will invest in that translational space, the so-called value of death. And in the clinical research space, we've uh, formed a a spin-off of our global CEO initiative on Alzheimer's, uh, which we're styling the Global Alzheimer's Platform Foundation. Uh, and it is in the course of raising $70 million over the next five years uh, to speed clinical trials uh, by increasing the rate of recruitment uh, to clinical trials uh, and by establishing a standardized standing global network of trial sites around the world. Uh, that are optimized uh, for faster trials of Alzheimer's drugs. Okay. Uh, the well, uh, number one barrier to the speed of uh, getting an innovative medicine on market uh, is the rate at which we recruit individuals uh, to clinical trials. The uh, number of clinical trials now in, uh, outstanding, uh, but it's taken years to recruit the participants in those trials that we've needed. And if you look down the pike to what we hope to be a larger pipeline of potential products, it will take tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of individuals uh, willing to sign up and participate in clinical trials. Uh, and we simply don't have either the economics or, or the techniques yet uh, to create that many new participants in clinical trials. Well, and I think that there's a lot of fear, too, for people um, you know, is it really going to matter? What's going to happen? I mean, there's just there's a lot of unanswered questions. And then there are so many trials that people just, like you said, don't even know about. So it, it's it's getting people educated on the importance that, you know, there can't be, you know, we can't get a cure without these things. I mean, this is just part of the process. And, um, you know, we have to all become more proactive and, and realize the importance of of all of these trials and what's going on. I also want to mention, George, I think one of the things that um, I think you guys have done just beautifully in terms of um, getting people active in Congress, um, the way you guys um, set things up and shoot them out on social media, make it so easy for people to get involved 
And um, you've really, I, I think, just done such a miraculous job at at changing that connection of individuals um, with their with their Congress and and getting politically active in this. So kudos to you to you all on that. Well, thank you for that. Uh, um, my wife has what she calls the members only policy. Uh, she insists that we will only meet with a member of Congress. We will not meet with staff. That's just us individually. Mm -hmm. uh, but because uh, because we need really to impress uh, members of Congress, Senate, and House uh, about the importance of this uh, to the American people. With that said, one of the things that we think is happening at the same time is that more members of Congress themselves are talking about the fact that they have Alzheimer's in their families. Mm -hmm. uh, that is causing congressmen and senators uh, themselves to recognize uh, that what they're experiencing, they can talk about. So talk about you know awareness raising. Uh, it is members of Congress talking about what's happening in their own families. And as you know, so many families are being affected. So many families of members of Congress are being affected. And, and that is itself beginning to create its own um, um, uh, momentum. With that said, every congressman has a different priority in life, uh, their political life uh, and, and their professional life. And so we're always fighting uh, for uh, Alzheimer's investments uh, and actually now fighting for means of mitigating the burdens on caregivers uh, as a should be a higher priority, um, whether it's a higher priority uh, against a domestic uh, other domestic programs or whether it's a priority vis-a-vis -vis the defense program. Uh, we need to make sure that members of Congress are aware of the extent of the disease in American families in addition to their own uh, so that they, in fact, recognize that it's a priority uh, for their constituents. So I, I'm glad uh, that uh, you think that our social media program is effective in reaching uh, more people. Uh, we're, we, we, we are, we, obviously, because we're a smaller organization, we try to use uh, the techniques that, uh, that uh, smaller organizations use uh, to get more information out there. We've always compared ourselves as Facebook uh, to the associations Microsoft. Uh, both are essential to moving digital technology and innovation forward, uh, but they operate differently. Mm -hmm. uh, we are smaller, so we have to operate uh, uh, cooperative and collaboratively, uh, and the Alzheimer's Association operates very effectively with large resource and raising awareness uh, and doing the other things that it does. Well, I'd like to just throw out a suggestion um, to maybe be able to put in place for, for the next election. I have never been one who has been um, overly politically active. And actually, my mom, who uh, passed away two years ago, literally came to me in a dream and said, you are going to caucus, girl. <laughs> you, know, and you, are, you are getting involved. So I did go. And I ended up... Um, you know, making a couple of recommendations, um, but I didn't really know how to how to how to write them up. And I'm just thinking if your organization could get out to people and they would, you know, submit those, um, you know, at caucus um, to get in front and then have a more specific voice versus, you know, every caucus coming up with their own verbiage and then it having to be merged together. But if there was, uh, if there was, uh, you know, a set format um, like you guys have done for, you know, writing letters, you know, to, to members of Congress to get, um, to get that in front and really get that as a, as a lead goal, um, 
I, I don't know if that would be helpful or not. I, for me, as somebody new in the ball game, it would have been uh, it would have been wonderful, you know. And I got my move forward, but it was like um, it was a struggle because I, I I just sat down and I had never seen that before. I didn't have a clue, but I'm like, I'm going to write something up, you know, and and I did. And so just a thought there that that might be something that could blossom quite easily and have a stronger voice as a whole with a similar verbiage. Well, I, I think that's a great idea. I think uh, any way that we can amplify uh, the voices uh, of Americans, uh, American families about this disease, uh, the better. Um, and um, so uh, we take this offline, but very mm-hmm. much like to explore with you how that might work and how we might actually, uh, uh, you know, develop it uh, further. Because it's one thing for us to send out sort of a, you know, the, what we do and have people react, and that's been very powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really has increased um, the sense uh, in Congress uh, about how many people uh, are affected by this disease and how much they care about it. But to be able to more individualize those communications or those expressions um, uh, and, and be able to deliver them to individual members, uh, because we all know that these congressmen and women and senators represent particular states or districts, um, anything that we can do uh, to personalize it uh, and to amplify American voices, uh, not ours, but everybody else's. Uh, will be welcome. So that's worth that's worth uh, some greater exploration. Okay, great. Um, while we're speaking of, of you know drugs and cr- clinical trials, you know uh, getting drugs to the people who need them is definitely a first step. But how you know are we even prepared to do that when FDA clears treatments to really push things through? When we when we also know that there's so many people that are underdiagnosed or undiagnosed. Um, with this disease? Well, I, I think that's a really a very astute question. Uh, but um, uh, you're going to have uh, later on, I think in the next hour, Drew Holzapple, uh, who heads uh, our uh, global CEO initiative on Alzheimer's. Uh, and while he'll report uh, on this in more detail, uh, just the top headline uh, is that he's done a report uh, that um, outlines uh, or reports that there are now 17 drugs uh, in late-stage clinical trials which are on a pace uh, to get to market within the next five years uh, so that we are maybe on the cusp of some significant innovation uh, in uh, the medicines in this space. Uh, and so with that, you ask the right question. So, okay, let's assume we begin to get these drugs coming through the pipeline. Is the FDA ready to assess them, uh, or is Medicare going to pay for any portion of those drugs? Uh, and are physicians actually in a place where they can detect and diagnose uh, those individuals who are right uh, for the particular medicines that are emerging? And we don't think uh, we think the answer to that is no. Uh, one of the great challenges here is that all the tradition, all the drugs that have been tried in the past have been tested in people with mild to moderate disease. And the way that we have assessed whether or not those drugs work or not is whether they improve a person's ability not only to their memory, but also that they're able to better do their functional activities of daily living. Can they brush their teeth when they couldn't before? 
are they able to toilet themselves when they weren't able to do that before? Well, increasingly, one of the reasons that scientists believe that, in fact, those drugs were, were failing uh, was because we tested them uh, too late in the course of the disease, after the disease may have done too much damage to the brain to actually be able to have a medicine uh, 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 change the course of the disease. So increasingly, we're testing medicines in people in the mild stage of Alzheimer's or even before they're diagnosed with Alzheimer's when they have mild cognitive impairment and even possibly uh, before they get any symptoms of disease. Well, if that's the case, how do you test whether or not a drug is improving the functional abilities of an individual? You can't. So you have to have a standard by which you're going to judge the success of a drug based not on its ability to improve the function of a person, but to improve their memory alone, or even potentially uh, based upon the change of some in, uh, uh, biological marker inside the body before symptoms appear. So we have a challenge in getting the regulatory system ready to evaluate those drugs. And then we have the problem of who's going to pay for these drugs, because the first drugs out, like any first product in any new area, are likely to be expensive. Is Medicare going to pay for these drugs? The answer to that is far, far from clear. The first diagnostic process that comes to, has come through the system, uh, which was able to differentially diagnose between uh, Alzheimer's and other causes of dementia, uh, that is to say, dementia is a more general uh, challenge, a more general condition, and Alzheimer's is the main cause of dementia. But there are other causes of dementia. Well, amyloid PET scans uh, was able to differentially determine whether the dementia was the result of Alzheimer's or some other uh, disease, and uh, Medicare uh, has chosen, at least for the time being, not to reimburse for that, and has now required an entire another five-year study to determine whether or not to reimburse uh, for the general use of that product. So we don't know whether Medicare is going to reimburse. So we have some work to do, which we're starting this year, on working with uh, the, the payers around the world, but including Medicare here in the United States, to see what evidence they will want uh, as they assess these initial medicines uh, to reimburse for them. And then finally, uh, doctors. The, the different medicines are going to be aimed at different uh, stages of the disease, individuals at different stages of the disease, and these medicines are going to have uh, different targets for what they're aimed at. So there are going to be some improved next-generation symptomatic drugs aimed at uh, paranoia, aimed at hallucinations, uh, aimed at anxiety, uh, which are symptomatic outputs of Alzheimer's. So that will be a set of drugs. There'll be other drugs that aimed at mild or pre, uh, or prodromal, uh, mild cognitive impairment populations, uh, aimed at slowing the disease down. Well, unless you know where a person is in the course of the disease, you're not going to know whether or not this, a particular medicine is appropriate for them. And doctors simply do not have sufficient geriatric training yet or training in this particular disease. Uh, to be able to detect and then diagnose appropriately uh, the individuals with the disease. So we have work to do as we're beginning this year as well uh, with doctors to begin to get them sort of um, ready, willing, and able uh, to diagnose the disease so that we can match the medicines that are emerging 
uh, with the people that uh, need them. Okay. Well, that's great. The The other question is, you know, um, and you had mentioned the price of, of new medications, but I know there are still so many families um, today just struggling to, to pay for medication that's actually been out for for quite a quite a while you know they just it's food or medications or housing um is us against alzheimer's looking at the the total economics of families impacted at all or is that part of your legislation or is it strictly that you're going more towards a research based no well we are very much working on the care space as well but that uh, we're working internationally on that to develop international care standards and we're working as well uh, with NIH on care research and care uh, programs um, uh, uh, as well. We have some legislation uh, now uh, pending in Congress which would provide a Medicare benefit uh, to Medicare beneficiaries diagnosed with Alzheimer's that would educate uh, family caregivers, educate and train and provide support for family caregivers. It is at least a first step uh, to get Medicare to recognize the caregiver burden uh, and to begin to address it. Uh, but uh, caregivers need more than that. They need respite care. Uh, they need uh, in-home assistance. Uh, they need a variety of support mechanisms that they're not getting now uh, and uh, which uh, we need to develop and we need to figure out how to pay for them. Uh, we, you will hear uh, from other members of our team on um, how there is a disparate impact uh, on the uh, financial well-being uh, or the physical well-being of women and minorities. Uh, and, uh, and women are now the majority, and minorities uh, in the aggregate will be the majority of this country in the coming decades, meaning that the health of our minorities is going to be the health of America. So understanding exactly how this um, disease not only uh, affects women and minorities differently, but how the economic burden of this disease is affecting different segments of society is very important to understanding the projected uh, effects uh, on the social fabric of America. Uh, as women are drawn out of the workforce uh, to stay home with their loved one, um, and as minorities who are already subject to a wide variety of health and economic disparities see the crushing burden of the costs of uh, taking care of a loved one uh, in, uh, with dementia, uh, we're going to see some real uh, rending uh, of the social fabric of the country. And so we really do need to understand these health and uh, economic uh, disparities, uh, recognize these are issues of economic and social justice as well as health uh, and economics uh, so that we uh, can motivate uh, our country to come together in ways that we've done before with other diseases including cancer, but HIV, AIDS, polio, and others. Um, we need to have a, this country come together and focus on how we can uh, help the families that have this disease and then uh, find the cure uh, from the disease so that we can live uh, a life whose, whose health span and whose brain span equals uh, our, 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 the rest of our lifespan. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, Trish, I'm going to throw a question back to you because um, I, I get this question all the time, and I, I'm just curious if you get this as well. People ask me, you know, are you nervous that you're going to get the disease because your mom had it? Um, do you get that question from people? A little. Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. But 
um, for some reason, my mother, who is, you know, the biggest warrior in the world, um, a raindrop meant a, you know, a tsunami to her, um, it skipped my generation and, and went into my daughter. So, uh, <laughs> so she still wants me to call when I get home. But um, I, yeah, I don't see any real purpose in worrying about it, and not that that really stops you from worrying, but... I just think we're going to solve it. Mm-hmm. I just really do. I get, you know, it, it, the biggest problem with Alzheimer's, I think, um, is that you feel so out of control. The caregiver feels so, what can we do? Although I do have some advice for that. But, um, you know, and so I, I think we're taking reins more than, you know, more than just saying, oh, my God. Um, so I'm not. I'm really not worried about it. Are you worried? Uh, you know, I'm not. Um, I, I'm probably more conscious of when I uh, miss a word, you know, mm-hmm. or can't find something. But I, 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 you know, I hear from all my friends; they're doing the same no, thing. I, honestly, you know? I can remember. I never could remember a name. And in fact, I tell my kids to wear name tags. I mean, <laughs> it, it's just impossible for me. Yeah. But um, so I keep thinking, okay, my mother didn't remember. I didn't remember. Maybe it's not a good thing to go back to my mother didn't remember. But, you know, never. Yeah, so. I just, I, I, I don't believe the whole going into the, the worry mode is going gonna, is gonna to help fix anything. And um, we all know, you know, if you talk to anybody with dementia, they'll say stress increases their symptoms. So, you know, and, and that worry is stress, you know, if right. we want to admit it or not. So, and I, I've also chosen not to get tested. People ask me about getting tested. And I, I just don't think it's going to do me any good at this yeah. point, you know. Um, nothing is for me. I mean, you know, so if I know, then mm-hmm. I can become a warrior. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, the thing that I think we all can do, um, and this may may just be as a, a summary, but is that I, I'm urging, of course, people to sign up for usagainstalzheimers.org um, because numbers count. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in politics. So if Congress sees we have more members, they will be more responsive. So that's, you know, and send that to your list of people. I mean, that's, those are things we can do from our bedroom, mm-hmm. you know, from anywhere. And um, so once you take a little control, you, you know, you, I, not only do you feel better, you're accomplishing something for this disease. Yeah. Well, and like you said, you can be a warrior or you can be a warrior, which you want to be. And, um, you know, kind of kind of take your pick. And the other thing I, I want to mention is I, you know, I, I go out and I speak quite a bit. And I have you guys um, on my list in pretty much every single talk I do um, about the wonderful work you're doing and really urge people to sign up for your Alzheimer's daily. Your newsletter is just incredible every single day. It uh, is. I mean, I'm so proud of it. Yeah, and you should be. Jason has gotten that together. It's it's great. It really, it Jason Resendez, who is going to be on your call in an hour, next yeah. hour. Oh, yeah. wonderful, wonderful. Well, that's that's great because there's you know one of the questions I always get is you know what's going on with the science and where are things at. I'm like, if you really want to know, you need to subscribe to this. You need to sign up for this and get involved. Um, with this community because they you know they just send stuff out and it's so succinct and if you want to dig into it you can and if you want to pass on to the next one you can Um, but you really do a nice job highlighting and I 
I'm just floored at how much information is out there every single day that they pull together for us. It's it's just astounding. So it's wonderful. Um, Trish, I wanted to ask you about, you know, what's this about an Alzheimer's party? What's going on? Yeah, well, so my role in life basically was to cancel my husband's boat. <laughs> um, you know, when you're in uh, the midst of meeting and passion and everything, you don't, you don't ask all those questions you're supposed to ask. So I forgot to ask about his party affiliation. And then when I found out, I thought, well, as soon as we're married, I can, you know, get rid of that elephant. <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong. I mean, it was so mystifying to me because, you know, we generally have the same values and, and opinions of things. Um, but then we found our true purpose in life. Uh, you know, in 1910, uh, 2010, we started us against Alzheimer's. And um, so happily, our goal has solved our split party problem as well, because now we are the Alzheimer's party. And just as this disease is equal opportunity, these are ours, men or women, rich or poor, we realize we're all at risk. So first I started by looking at the candidates, you know, um, who has Alzheimer's in their family. And I was I was floored because on the Republican side, Ben Carlson, his mother, Ted Cruz, his grandmother, Donald Trump, his father, Marco Rubio, his aunt, Jeb Bush, his mother-in-law, Carly Farrell, Carly, um, her grandfather and father, and ex-candidate Rick Santorum, his father-in-law. So it was pretty well represented in, in the Republicans, which was a really hopeful sign because, you know, once you've seen Alzheimer's up close and personal you and you've watched a loved one disappear, um, you know, you pretty much know that you have to fight against this disease. But I'm also reminded, you know, of that old advertisement, you don't have to be Jewish to love Libby's rye bread. <laughs> and you don't have to have Alzheimer's in your family to know, I figured, that Alzheimer's can take down a family and a country's economy. So um, that's what I figured was going to happen if we didn't do something. Um, so we, we actually sent, uh, we had people at the, at the town hall meetings in the beginning asking this question, um, you know, what you're going to do. And of all the uh, candidates, Hillary is the only one who has addressed Alzheimer's with a concrete plan. So the Alzheimer's party loves her. Um, she, you know, she's uh, for getting at least to two billion per year for research and Alzheimer's and related disorders, and for coordinating with leading researchers to ensure progress uh, toward that treatment and alleviate the burden on, uh, you know, on. Alzheimer's caregivers and uh, protecting loved ones who wander from home. So, um, you know, we're, we're pretty crazy about her. Um, they, we asked Bernie Sanders, too, and he said, well, everyone needs, yeah, they, they need money, but every disease needs money. So I was, you know, best on that line. Um, and that may be true, but, you know, I went, I just, let me, just retract or go back a little. Um, in 2004, we went to Hillary and said um, uh, she was very good friends um, with Linda Bloodworth Thomason, who created Designing Women, and I was on that show at the time, writing for that show. 
And the same week, Linda and I discovered our mothers had a fatal disease. Um, my mom had Alzheimer's, and her mother had um, AIDS from a transfusion. So her mother was dead in six months and mine in five years. And I said to Hillary, if that happened today, her mother would live. My mother would still die. And, you know, it's not that I want to take anything away. I mean, HIV AIDS was so amazing, their organization and their, you know, because they had a voice. Mm-hmm. And and they got money, and they, it, you know, it's a manageable disease. You and I both know what we would have done for a manageable disease. Yep. So, but they're still getting three billion, and I don't want to take their money away. But we're not even getting a billion, and we, you know, we have a hundred percent death. So, so we started this, uh, and and I guess what it it's a to raise awareness, and b we have interns who are coming in. For this specific election, for instance, who will try and find out from every everyone who's running, every senator, every um, every congressperson, what they're going to do about it, and we're going to also ask their, you know, the people who are running against them, mm-hmm. and you know, let them know that that pressure is there, because it is there, because this isn't, you know, just who's going to complain about it, who eats better. Um, it's it's going to you know, it's a life or death situation. So we want to do that. We want to raise that awareness, and we want to keep going after this election. I mean, this is, to, to us, it's really important. Uh, you know, it's a communications tool. It roots our advocacy message. It integrates all the work underway on the Hill and will provide an opportunity to rally grassroots advocates in congressional, you know, districts. So... I know I'm probably rambling, but I'm, I just know that we, we need it because, you know, we, we need to look at the issues that matter. And to us, at this time, this matters. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, did I answer that? No, you did. You did. I had no idea that the Alzheimer's Party was was politically, you know, um, slanted there. I, I thought maybe we were doing some kind of gala and we we're just calling it oh. something else. So, so that was all <laughs> well, new. We'll eventually do that. <laughs> So <laughs> to celebrate its demise, um, but no, I I mean you know we're we're getting in the action. I I, I mean we have to be there. You know we have to be able to say we did something. So, so is, that's what the Alzheimer's Party is. Yep. So is there an actual Alzheimer's Party that people can sign up for to be part of a petition? Or yes, go on usagainstalzheimer.org. Okay. okay. We have everything there. You know, we don't only send out messages every day, although that is in of itself enough of a reason to exist. But, you know, this is when you can I – want, I want people in every state to be writing to their congressional people and saying, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. That's when Congress reacts. I, I mean, the reality is we have to put it in Congress's hand because, you know, who's going to give $2 billion? I don't, not too many people here. Yep. So they're the ones who can control that. Okay. So, okay. Yes. So uh, if, I guess we'll have a party, I promise. Okay. So, so if somebody <laughs> goes to your site, would they go to the sign the petition under the take the action then? They can. They absolutely can do that. But they can also, you know, if they can't figure out who their can't who their uh, representative or senator is, mm-hmm. 
write to us. We will let you know. We'll let you know how to contact them. I mean, this this is what you can do. You know? Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Well, that's right. My passion overcomes me. No, no. That's I. <laughs> I, I love talking to people that that love what they do. You know, because uh, it gives me hope that things are actually going to change and we're going to make a it difference will. out there. It will. You keep up your radio program. We'll do our thing. Yeah. Wonderful. Your radio program is amazing. Wonderful. Um, George, is there any last point that you you want to make before we um, transition over to some of your subgroups at all? The only point I'd make, and it's probably not uh, that uh, relevant to your audience, is the fact this is a global problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, uh, while we have maybe five to five and a half million people in this country uh, that are estimated to have the disease, it's almost 50 million people globally, with well over 100 million caregivers. Uh, and in the coming decades, it will be over 100 million people, uh, 100 and close to 140 million people with the disease, and 500 million caregivers. And what that means is, in absolute numbers, people dying at a rate greater than the Black Death. Right? That we're we're going to experience this disease globally, in a way that will simply destroy the economic, um, excuse me, it will have a serious effect on global economic growth uh, and family structures around the world on the empowerment of women. And while we focus uh, in this country with all of its resources uh, on what we need to do here, uh, we've got to recognize to some extent that the United States has always taken the lead uh, in terms of solving the world's health problems whether it's Ebola or Zika or polio uh, or HIV-AIDS, the United States has taken a lead globally. The United States has not taken a lead globally on Alzheimer's. It has the ability to do so. It is the largest investor in the research globally. Uh, It has a plan in place that was a model for other countries, uh, and yet the United States has not stepped up. So we uh, do have to remember as important as it is to every American family, to, uh, important it is to one's own family, there are ten times as many people uh, affected by this in, in the world uh, than Americans. And so that's why uh, there is a global attention to the disease, uh, but it is also uh, uh, why uh, it is important that the United States be the leader solve the disease here. By solving the disease here, it will solve it for uh, uh, hundreds of millions of people globally in the coming decades. Wonderful. And you do say if you, if you think research is expensive, try disease. Mm-hmm. Isn't that yeah. the truth? Isn't that yeah. the truth? You know, and um, I'm glad you brought that point up, George, because actually our, our listeners are international, so they will they will love that they were included um, in this um, conversation as well, uh, because we have we have people all over that we um, interview and uh, that listen to the show that follow us. So um, thank you so much. None of us are in this alone. This this is a global effort, and it needs to be because there's there's so much information and research out there, like you said, that needs to be shared um, so that we can you know push ourselves up the hill and over the mountain. And um, come out the other side. So thank you both so so much for um, spending this first hour with us. We look forward to wrapping up with you at the end of our second hour here. Um, 
I'm just going to do a, a couple of shout outs for some information here. If you didn't get a chance to watch the last Dementia Chats, um, I would encourage you to do so. We had a great conversation this morning. I will be getting that video out uh, later today or tomorrow, the recording. And on this, uh, this one, we talked about relationships and um, the sacrifice that goes on both for the care partner and the person who is diagnosed and how that is perceived and how we need to have those conversations um, to make sure that we are um, nurturing our relationships and that we don't let the disease take that from us. Um, you can get all of the past Dementia Chats uh, recordings on alzheimerspeaks.com. Just go to our Initiations and Projects uh, tab, and from there you'll see uh, the recordings for the Dementia Chats, which are free webinars we do um, twice a month um, on the second and fourth Tuesday every morning. And again, if you can't make it live, you can always watch them later. I also wanted to just give a shout out. Um, I've been traveling around a little bit. I was down with um, Autumn Leaves in Texas for a week. And we did um, several screenings of the wonderful uh, Hollywood film, His Neighbor Phil, and just got a marvelous response from the community there. I was out in Wilmer, Minnesota uh, for an all-day conference where we also did a screening of the film and then recently out at the Job Corps. And um, if you haven't had a chance to see that film, um, I encourage you to uh, you know reach out to myself or one of the other sponsors who has um, has that available uh, to be able to show. I'll be in Tyler, Texas, uh, actually tomorrow, going down there for a caregiver uh, survival camp. So if you're in the area, please swing by and um, uh, talk with the Alzheimer's Alliance of Smith uh, County in Tyler, Texas. I would love to love to meet up with you down there if you're out and about. Um, what else did I want to point out? Um, our last radio show, we had Dr. Richard um, Isaacson on. Um, he talked about the Alzheimer's diet. We also had Kathy Borey on last week, the author of The Long Hello, which just got picked up here in the U.S., so that was very exciting. And then next week, we are going to have Dee Dee Footer, who is... Um, who is going to be on, and she's going to talk about her personal experience about caring for her dad um, who had dementia. And uh, we always just love hearing that authentic voice of those in the trenches and um, how they gracefully and graciously um, maneuvered through things and then uh, so lovely to share their own stories and lessons learned through the process. I just think that's just a way, such a nice way for us to give a hand up to one another because we all know uh, something more than the next guy and a, and a lot less than somebody else. and um, But it's all about sharing knowledge and being collaborative and removing that fear of, of telling our stories because our stories are so powerful out there. I also want to give a shout-out to the Caregiver Alert Center. If you are not familiar with them, you can go to our homepage and uh, just click on, uh, on the logo there. Um, this is a wonderful route um, for people to um, just have some reassurance in case their loved one would go and wander. It's only $15 a year. They um, pull a poster together. They work with the police department. Um, I know there's a lot of GPS and, and other avenues and alarms and stuff, but so many families can't afford that. And this poster can get disseminated within 10 minutes and get out to the public. And it's just a nice reassurance 
Um, you can also use the system. They have one actually for pets if you've got grandchildren, um, all kinds of things. So uh, I just I just think it's really slick. Um, I have used it personally, again, called the Caregiver Alert Center. And if you go through our webpage, you'll also get a discount on that. Um, here on Alive and Social, um, I'd love to give a shout-out just to uh, Drew Applebaum and um, and Scott. They're a father and son team who discuss sports, and you can find out if Fathers Knows Best. Their show is uh, live Monday at 2.30. And um, I think that's it for, for announcements for right now. So why don't we... Go ahead and um, continue the conversation, and we're going to get into some of the specialty groups that um, Us Against Alzheimer's has. So the first person I'd like to introduce is Jason Resendez, and he directs the Latinos Against Alzheimer's Network and Coalition and the nation's first national initiative to activate Latino health um, policy in community stakeholders to fight against Alzheimer's and other dementias. Um, previously, Jason served as a senior manager of strategic partners at the National Council of La Raza, and that's the NCLR, which is the, the nation's largest Latino advocacy organization. So welcome, Jason. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first, I have to go kudos for the newsletter. I didn't know that that was coming from you. <laughs> um, like I said, I just rave about this thing all the time. I, I personally, Thank you. I have to admit, I don't have time to read it all, but I'm just um, flabbergasted at what you pull together every single day um, to keep us updated on what's going on. I really feel like um, if I need information, I know exactly where to go. You know, you're the, the well, go. Well, thank you. That that means a lot to us. And, you know, that's why we started the, the product was, you know, because so many folks uh, throughout the country at all different levels, whether they're policy uh, uh, folks or uh, caregivers or folks who have been impacted by the disease to researchers, you know, there's just so many different uh, kinds of uh, uh, things happening in the Alzheimer's space that, you know, in some ways are interconnected. Um, but there wasn't really a great place to go and find all of it, um, and you know, especially in a curated uh, manner. So it was really a foresight of us against Alzheimer's to put that product together. Uh, and it just really goes to show how much interest there is and how much information there is about this disease, that the, the impact of it grows on our country and our families and communities. Well, it's wonderful. I don't know if you guys are listed um, for your newsletter in um, Alzheimer's Speaks Resource um, directory, but I should check into that because we should definitely get you um, in oh, wonderful. there for, yeah, appreciate for people. That. And, um, you know, anybody can list their resources in there. It's just a general, you know, mining of information. Uh, that was one of the struggles I guess I felt, you know, as a daughter that I didn't know where to go. I, I didn't know. I, I knew that there had to be more out there, but I just didn't know how to find it. And I think there's so many organizations and then individuals just doing great work that the you know the voice just has to be raised so thank you so much for what you're doing um jason why don't you tell us why it's important um to to raise awareness of of alzheimer's and dementia in the latino community sure yeah definitely uh and i think george did a great job of alluding it, to it earlier talking about the you know the future health of our nation really depends on the health of 
uh, you know, the our minority groups, uh, Latinos, African American, and also women, obviously. Uh, and as we think about the Latino community and what it looks like now, the popular perception is, you know, the young millennial, the folks that we want to sell uh, cars to, we want to sell, you know, consumer products to, iPhones, et cetera. Um, but really, the flip side of that is that the Latino older adult population is the most uh, is the most rapidly aging population. Uh, between now and 2030, the Latino older adult population, 65 and older, will grow 224%, you know, compared to 65% growth for the uh, non-Latino uh, white population. Um, and the number one, as we know, the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's uh, is advanced age. Uh, so this is increasingly becoming a, uh, a, a Latino public health issue that needs to be addressed. Um, so one is just the sheer numbers that we're going to see over the coming decades of Latinos um, struggling uh, with Alzheimer's. Uh, but then two, uh, Latinos are 1.5 times more likely to get Alzheimer's than non-Latino whites for a number of reasons. So one, we're just uh, demographically uh, uh, at risk for the disease. But then two, because of other health factors like cardiovascular disease, the diabetes, Latinos are 65% more likely to be diabetic. Uh, 45% more likely to die from diabetes, 15% more likely to be obese. You know, these are all uh, uh, metabolic risk factors that increase uh, your chances of getting Alzheimer's. So there's a, a lot of factors that come to play to really make this an important issue for Latinos to be aware of and for public health and policymakers to really think about uh, how this disease is particularly impacting uh, this population. Okay. Um how I, I want to just ask you culturally, how receptive is the, is the Latino culture in terms of talking about this? Because I know with with certain cultures, they're just it's not on the table. It's not a comfortable thing to discuss. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think you know it, it really is a case by you know family by family. But generally, in terms of uh, research that's been done, one of our coalition members, the National Hispanic Council on Aging has done some qualitative research in this area and found that overwhelmingly Latinos lack uh, an awareness of Alzheimer's as a disease. You know, they might recognize some symptoms, but they don't associate, you know, the family of, uh, uh, or the certain set of symptoms as being associated with Alzheimer's. They're more likely to attribute it to old age or, you know, grandma's just getting old. So there's an overwhelming uh, lack of awareness of Alzheimer's as a disease, as something that's separate from normal aging. And uh, so that's a big complicating factor. But then on top of that, when you do start recognizing the issue, there's a lot of stigma, cultural stigma associated with the disease, where folks uh, in this qualitative study, uh, you know, thought this was, might be a punishment uh, from God or a punishment for the things that they've done in the past. Um, so there's definitely a lot of stigma associated with the disease. There's a lot of uh, misunderstanding associated with the disease in the Latino community. Um, but it's something that we're having to deal with more and more. Uh, Latino communities uh, tend more likely to be are intergenerational. Uh, so we're seeing more and more Latino households com- uh, being comprised of, uh, you know, uh, kids, uh, parents, and then also maybe a, a grandfather, grandmother, you know, older adults in the family. Uh, so as that grows, uh, I think this is an issue we're going to have to become more familiar and, and face head on. Okay. Is, is it something at all that you're approaching in uh, school-age children? That's a great question. We haven't, uh, that's not been 
a focus of, of the Latino network, but I think that's a really interesting, uh, really interesting proposition that we should look into. We've been trying to really frame this disease as a family disease, okay. and that's something that you know you'll hear, hear from my colleagues and definitely Trish and George's experience. You know, highlight how you know one person might get this disease, but it really does impact an entire family across generations, mm-hmm. um, and that's particularly true of the Latino community. Uh, so we're trying to frame this as a, you know, a family disease that uh, needs that conversation needs to happen as a family, and that treatment needs to happen as a family, and, and there are other opportunities to engage as a family as well, and that could include clinical trial research, uh, for example. Uh, so the idea of getting, you know, uh, school-age kids, you know, we're looking at millennials sort of having that conversation about, you know, things you might be noticing with your with your uh, mom or dad or grandfather. But I think that that same principle can apply with with younger students as well. Yeah, the reason I ask is I I used to go out, uh, and I haven't for many years now, but I used to go out and talk with uh, junior high and high school um, students. And I started out just kind of talking about aging, and then we got into, you know, dementia as a whole. Um, And we did a lot of very interactive things. Um, But then one of the questions I would pose is, you know, how many of you have been touched by this and, and how many, uh, you know, are, is caring for somebody in their own home? Well, the family dynamics changed significantly. And what I found was these kids really want to help um, and from all cultures, um, but that nobody is telling them what's really going on. And I just think that, you know, kids are just such a powerhouse. They're such a force. I mean, they, they got us to quit smoking and buckle up and, you know, because of their knowledge and, and what they learned. And I, I just think that they would be a great um, um, seed to feed, um, to get information into the families and to be able to educate um, from a different angle. Uh, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so um, I just throw that out there for for whatever reason. Um, can you explain to our audience, you know, why it's so important to have diversity in clinical trials? Um, because I, you know, I hear this all the time from people. Well, you know, we don't, we don't meet the criteria. We don't meet the criteria. Um, how does that impact the, the Latino population? Sure. Well, one, uh, it's, it's, it's very important to have diversity in clinical trials for a couple of reasons. One, you know, we want to make sure that when a treatment or a drug is developed, that that drug or treatment works across communities. You know, it works the same with someone who, you know, has a four-year college degree and it works the same in someone who, you know, might not have completed uh, high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that that, that development, that treatments and drugs, uh, work for all communities, so Latinos, African-Americans, whites, et cetera. So it's important that during that drug development process that uh, diversity is prioritized so that we have, you know, products that are effective across the board. So I think that's, that's really important. Uh, and, you know, like you alluded to, that does change kind of the trial design because so many Latinos, like I mentioned before, have a higher risk for having diabetes and so you might be screened out of that. So really uh, taking into account uh, those uh, uh, comorbidities when you're designing a clinical trial is important and thinking about that. The other reason is just the sheer numbers. Um, you know, and George can, and Drew can talk about this specifically, but, you know, the number of folks that we need uh, in clinical trials uh, is, is overwhelming. And if you're thinking about, you know, how we can recruit more individuals, um, you know, one of those uh, uh, potential pools of applicants is the growing Latino community. Um, we have 55 million Latinos 
uh, across the United States. Um, you know, that's a huge applicant uh, or huge uh, pool of potential child participants if we can just tap into it, and that'll enable us to develop drugs faster um, and, and more effectively. So I think that that's another big reason why you know, we need to really unlock the diversity uh, puzzle is because we'll just be able to ha- you know, access so many more potential participants in trials. Okay. What kinds of resources do you feel need to be in place to really address this growing impact of, of Alzheimer's and dementia on the Latino community? What are we what are we mm-hmm. lacking in, in in what's there working? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the, the uh, things that folks have been working on for the past uh, several uh, decades has been, you know, really thinking about uh, how to better uh, develop culturally tailored information uh, for uh, Latinos and also African-Americans and other communities uh, about uh, Alzheimer's uh, and dementia. So, and clearly, you know, uh, given the, uh, the low diagnosis rates among uh, uh, Latinos and other minorities, that, that material has to be completely effective in terms of pushing it out and getting it into the hands of folks. So I think that that's one area we can do a, a better job of is, you know, really thinking through the awareness piece and sort of how we're talking to individuals and, you know, what channels that uh, we're uh, trying to uh, push this information out to reach uh, Latinos and other minorities. I think that's key. The other piece is, you know, better engaging um, uh, minority uh, serving positions, you know, minority physicians and minority serving positions and also minority specialists. So making sure that primary care physicians uh, in the Latino community and other minority communities are educated about Alzheimer's uh, and treatment options, in addition to being educated about clinical trial opportunities um, and being able to provide uh, treatment and options to uh, minority communities regarding the disease is important. Uh, you know, that Latino, lower income individuals are less likely to engage in the primary health system than others uh, due to, you know, economic situations, et cetera. But once they do, you know, making sure that those folks are engaging with are, are educated and aware of Alzheimer's. The same thing with, you know, focusing on engaging local health clinics because you, know, you might not have a primary health physician. A lot of uh, lower income uh, minority, particularly the Latino community, will interact with a, a local uh, health clinic, you know, a community-based health clinic, um, uh, and making sure that that network is educated and aware of Alzheimer's and, and, that, and particularly that this disease impacts um, Latinos at a higher rate than, than other communities. You know, that's been one of the main things that, that I've realized working on this issue uh, going into it was uh, that there's just folks don't understand that this is a disease that, that Latinos are at higher risk of. Um, and so really making that a priority and educating the appropriate stakeholders, not just on the health side, but also on the policy side and the research side uh, is vital uh, to addressing the problem. Okay. So if we've got any listeners who um, want to get involved, can they just reach out to you on Us Against Alzheimer's if they would like to become part of, of the Latino yes. network? Just certainly. Uh, Latinos, uh, you can go to usagainstalzheimers.org, and then there's a drop-down bar for our networks, or you can go directly to latinosagainstalzheimers.org, and you can sign up uh, to get information about our network and the work that we're doing throughout the country. Are there other ways that people can um, contribute to your efforts? Yes, if you are a listener and you uh, work uh, in a uh, minority uh, community or, or a city where you now have a strong minority population and you work for a 
of nonprofit advocacy organization. Uh, we've been continuously expanding the Latinos Against Alzheimer's Coalition, uh, which is the first coalition of organizations coming together and recognizing that Alzheimer's is a is an urgent health issue in the Latino community um, and approaching it the same way that they've made, they've approached HIV, uh, cancer, heart disease, et cetera. Um, so we have a, a, a coalition of uh, leading national and also local uh, Latino serving, minority serving uh, institutions, and we'd love to expand that. Uh, so if folks are interested and think that their organization that they represent might be appropriate, please feel free to, to reach out uh, via our website. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us, Jason, and, and updating us on, on your initiative there. Really appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Next, I want to introduce uh, Drew Holsafal, and he serves as the executive director of the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease. And this is a coalition of the private sector leaders from pharma and biotech and finances and healthcare. And prior to joining the initiative, Drew was at Pfizer working on the company's Alzheimer's pipeline strategy and in the commercial development for late-stage compounds. So welcome, Drew. Well, thank you. Well, I'm excited to to learn more about your global initiative um, in this private sector. So can you tell us um, first a little bit about um, what are some of the current treatments for Alzheimer's and, and what does the future look like? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and thanks for the opportunity today. This has uh, been a great program, and uh, it's great to be involved. Uh, So in terms of current treatments in the U.S. today, there are five drugs on market that address the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. These drugs uh, provide meaningful relief to patients and caregivers, but unfortunately, it's only temporary. They usually last about six to nine months, so uh, obviously, uh, this is too short. We definitely need new weapons in this fight, and we've not had a novel drug on market, a new novel drug on market in over a decade. So really, when you look at it, in the last 100 years since the first disease was, since the disease was first characterized, uh, we've had little improvement. I think, as, as George mentioned, the treatment landscape moving forward looks pretty good. And just to reiterate, uh, the report released uh, last month by researchers against Alzheimer's disease, uh, which is a network of us against Alzheimer's, there are 17 drugs that might make it into the market in the next five years. And so if you want to see this report and see the breakdown, uh, you can visit the Researchers Against Alzheimer's network page uh, on usagainstalzheimers.org. So while I did say that the outlook, I think, is pretty good, the caveat here is that given the history with Alzheimer's disease, all bets are off. We've had less than a 1% success rate in drug development in Alzheimer's disease, according to an analysis by Jeff Cummings at Cleveland Clinic. This is really low. It's a low even for a generally low success rate in drug development. Uh, But again, we do have renewed optimism with a robust late-stage pipeline. And what's really important about this next wave of innovation is it might be able to attack the disease in new ways. So what do I mean when I say uh, attack the disease in in new ways? Uh, These late-stage compounds could delay or slow the progression of the disease. So the benefit to the patient really is that they maintain independence, uh, are able to live alone longer, It also decreases the need for caregiver support. 
And one other example show what this really means is in this next wave of innovation comes from an analysis by the Lewin Group. Uh, a treatment that would be introduced in 2025 that delays the onset of Alzheimer's by five years would reduce the number of people with the disease by over five million by, by mid-century. So that's not uh, that's not just important in terms of the number of people uh, w w decreasing with the disease, but it equally is staggering is that it would save the uh, system over $200 billion within the first five years. So if all goes well, the future uh, could mean new options and lower care costs. Well, that would be that would be nice. We would all be lining up for that one. Uh, that's for sure. What What do you think needs to change to really improve our chances of of successful um, drug development as a whole? Well, I'm going to pick up on a couple of themes that George and Trish and Jason hit, uh, and it, really the way I. Uh, see it, it's pretty simple. Uh, we need more money and we need more people like the Bradenbergs. So in other words, we need increased investment and we need a change in attitudes. Uh, it, it, when we invest in diseases at appropriate levels, we make great strides. And if you take oncology, for example, uh, where we're spending in the U.S. $6 billion a year on, on oncology research, uh, really started with an uh, important effort launched by President Nixon when he declared war on cancer. Uh, and since uh, that war on cancer, we've seen hundreds of drugs. Uh, according to the National Cancer Institute, uh, National Cancer Institute, uh, there are over 200 drugs in oncology. Uh, so we need that type of investment. And I think Trish hit the nail on the head. We don't see this as a zero-sum game. We just see it spending. Uh, to uh, spending levels that match the impact of the disease. So and the second piece is we need a change in attitudes. I think that's why programs like yours are so important. Uh, the stigma of this disease really sidelines the, both the patient with the disease and caregivers. And while we've talked a lot about HIV AIDS and, and the model of activism, uh, we might not uh, be, start chaining ourselves to the White House gates, uh, but we do need more people uh, demanding government action. You know, and I, I think of all the public examples of support for disease, and I'd love to see more of those public examples uh, for Alzheimer's. Uh, when you watch the uh, National Football League in the fall, you see uh, for a whole month uh, players wearing pink uh, to, to showcase their support for breast cancer. Uh, when you look at uh, breast cancer walks, you see the survivors who walk for three days to raise money and attention. You know, as, as the point's been made, Alzheimer's, there are no survivors, and the caregivers are stretched. So I think what we need is to really think about how we can continue to shine a light on this disease and, and make sure that the people with the disease uh, feel supported and that we're speaking out with them. Mm -hmm. which, which makes a, a lot of sense. Um, can you tell us what countries are leading in terms of the global effort to, to stop the disease by 20 25, and what are they doing to be considered a leader? Yeah, so I think on, on the country level and on the regional level, there are some uh, pockets of, of best practices. And I think the hope is by seeing these uh, best practices that they spread to other countries and regions. Uh, but the two most notable examples of uh, leadership both within a country, within a region, and also globally are France and in the U.K., 
And what's important in both of these examples is that the head of state has made this a top priority, has made Alzheimer's disease a top priority. And this type of leadership really does get results, and it stimulates actions from individuals to institutions uh, to branches of government and, and globally. Uh, the, the most recent example is Prime Minister Cameron's leadership in the UK. And it, the tangible examples of his commitment uh, has been, one, increased funding from government, and that's important. Uh, but two, increased donations from the public. Uh, the Alzheimer's Society UK's research budget uh, has grown fivefold since uh, Cameron uh, declared his efforts on uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and th three, it means people are being trained to be inclusive of people living with the disease. So now in the UK, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are de designated dementia friends. Uh, and last, and, and I think uh, it, as important as any of these examples, is you're seeing an increase in participation in research. So people are signing up for clinical trials at a, a faster clip than they were previously. And I think, as Jason pointed out, this will dramatically uh, increase the speed at which drugs are developed. Uh, are developed. So I think these are, are great results and provide models for other governments and other world leaders. Agree, agree. Um, you know, it's it's amazing when I go out and speak. Everyone just thinks that we are leading the pack. You know, with uh, with dementia, and people are just kind of shocked at what other countries are doing out there and so it's, it's just an interesting conversation and I think people are really taken back um, because so many more people are touched by this than than what they really you know have an, an everyday conversation about so um, it's good to hear that um, when do you expect to actually see a cure from Alzheimer's research and, and you know so it actually hits the market well, I just before I answer that question, I just want to return to your uh, point, and I think there's obviously more that can be done in the U.S. Uh, you know, it, it was alluded to earlier that NAPA, uh, the federal advisory group uh, focused on Alzheimer's disease, uh, that's a really important effort. Uh, and when you look at Alzheimer's research across the globe, uh, the U.S. is the number one funder of Alzheimer's research. So there's always more that can be done. Uh, but there has been uh, leadership in the U.S. that's uh, produced results. So I, I think it's important to note uh, as, we, as we all uh, fight this fight together. Uh, but just turning to your question at hand here is, a, is about a cure. Uh, you know, in the history of medicine, we, we've had very few diseases that we've cured. Uh, so as I look at, at the near-term horizon for a cure for Alzheimer's, unfortunately, without something unprecedented or unexpected, uh, I don't see one. Uh, but there are two important things that uh, will keep us on the path to finding a cure. And it's and been made uh, by the uh, previous uh, presenters, but just to reiterate, you know, the number one thing is that payers really need to embrace this next generation of treatment. So without access to the innovations that are on the verge of making it into the clinic or onto the market, uh, we won't make any progress. Uh, so that's, a, that's an important point. And then two, it, again, it's participation in research. And while I, I, I don't want to make the point that you should sign up expecting uh, to receive a cure, it is your commitment in, in your time that you spend in participating in research that will build a foundation and, and really drive us forward. 
Okay, great. Um, anything else that you'd like to add? I want to make sure that we have time to, um, you know, talk to the, the others on the line as well. But is there anything that, that I didn't touch on that you think is critical for our audience to, to know, Drew? Well, I think the, just the closing point is when we look at the companies that are part of the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease uh, that are committed to uh, changing the way that, uh, that Alzheimer's is approached, uh, this really is a uh, patient-driven corporate coalition. So we work closely with individuals uh, affected by the disease, caregivers, companies, governments, international organizations, and uh, NGOs. Uh, so we want to uh, build a big tent, and we really appreciate the companies that have uh, supported us and are driving us forward. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Drew. And if people, thank you. Um, if we've got some CEOs out there um, that are interested in becoming part of your group, is that something that is still open that they could get involved in? We would absolutely welcome their participation, and they can visit our website and send us an email through the website. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, our next guest is Jill Lesser, and Jill is the president of Women Against Alzheimer's, and she was motivated by her own personal experiences as a care partner to her mother with Alzheimer's disease, and she brings her passion and dedication to the cause. Um, which we've heard kind of a, as a theme from everybody that we've talked to so far. Um, Jill joined the board of Us Against Alzheimer's, which is the nonprofit organization dedicated to stopping the disease, and now as president of the Women's Network, her focus is really to amplify the voice of powerful um, voices of women. And, um, you know, because this group is so largely affected both as being, you know, diagnosed and also as caring for others. So her organization really gives um, women a platform to speak up and advocate for research funding and promote research challenges to help find a cure. So welcome, Jill. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to hear um, more about Women Against Alzheimer's. And, and how did this... Um, this spinoff happened. Was it prior to you coming, or um, were you one of the leaders in saying, hey, we, we need a separate group here? Yeah, so um, it, it actually, so I've been on, uh, on the board of Us Against Alzheimer's since its founding, as George said, and we, um, as an organization and under George and Trisha's leadership, um, quickly realized the importance of speaking to and for um, groups that are particularly under, underrepresented in the uh, advocacy around Alzheimer's and overimpacted. Um, and, you know, you've heard from my colleague Jason about Latinos Against Alzheimer's. And um, in our case, Women Against Alzheimer's was founded about four years ago. It really was, not surprisingly, uh, given the discussion you had in our first hour, the brainchild of Trish Freidenberg, um, Meryl Comer, who George mentioned as another founder of the organization, and myself, uh, as we realized uh, really two things. Um, one is the um, in, it, you know, sort of unbelievable impact on women as both patients and caregivers of this disease and the need to focus on Alzheimer's as a woman's disease and in particular as a woman's health crisis and a woman's economic crisis. 
And then secondly, um, we know from a number of other examples that um, when women uh, embrace an issue and care about it, uh, that women change the world. Um, and so built on those two premises, uh, we felt strongly about the need to have a women's network. And then over the last year, as I got more involved in the day-to-day -day work as president of Women Against Alzheimer's, we launched our We Won't Wait campaign um, that is really intended to take this work to the next level. Okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, the We Won't Wait? Absolutely. Um, so the We Won't Wait campaign is, um, again, uh, under the same premise of this being a critical issue uh, for women and not just women uh, who already think about Alzheimer's. So there are certainly lots of advocacy organizations that think about health and think about Alzheimer's. And our goal is... Um, to really expand the audience who understands that this is a uh, multi-generational disease, number one, um, that it affects, in my case, as an example, um, it has affected my children since they were very, very young. Um, it has certainly affected me and my ability to remain in the workforce uh, while I'm caring for my mother, and um, it goes without saying that it has obviously affected my mother in a very profound way. Um, and so it really is um, a lifelong issue for women. Um, it, it also, as I referenced before, in terms of my ability to stay in the workplace, it is um, really an economic uh, justice issue for women. And we believe that women's organizations that have been fighting for women's rights across the board, um, not just in the health space, but in equity space, in talking about, you know, uh, family leave and the kinds of policies that corporations and the government has um, to acknowledge the needs of women, uh, really need to get involved in this effort. And so the We Won't Wait campaign is an effort to call attention to the disease and expand uh, those people who think, you know, this is something that may affect me, it may affect my family, it may affect my friends. Um, and we certainly have not had trouble uh, finding those people and in virtually every case have found that organizations and individuals who have not previously thought of Alzheimer's as uh, something di that directly affects them really do see just how important it is. And we've, um, we have sort of undertaken a, a multi-pillared approach in terms of our working towards making change. And I think uh, George, George and Trish very articulately laid out the, the theory for this organization, which is advocacy and working with policymakers, but also being the change. And our model is, is the same. So our pillars include more money for research, but importantly, focusing on uh, sex-based research and uh, the importance of the examination of women's brains not just in clinical research, but in basic and translational research as well. Um, and I think all of us who are women know that it doesn't really take a lot of research to have us understand that women's and men's brains are different. And so it is uh, not that uh, difficult to sort of make the jump that we really do need to be looking at women's brains as we're, as we're putting more resources into, into the study of, of neuroscience and brains generally. 
Um, our second pillar, as I already articulated, is around economic justice and mm -hmm. the changes in policy that we need to see to support, in particular, um, the millions of caregivers across a variety of different age groups um, and how we can um, advocate for policy change around uh, those kinds of policies. I think the third uh, category, and I'm, I'm sort of condensing um, our pillars, falls into the category of um, what I will call brain health and um, diagnosis and access to clinical trials. And I think um, as we have seen the evolution of um, our conversations broadly in the United States and around the world about cancer, um, what, we, what we really have to see is the courage to have honest conversations about dementia, about the risks, about what we can do, about the importance of seeking diagnosis, of um, why diagnosis is likely to lead to the best um, outcome in terms of uh, making sure you can sort of stave off symptoms, that you can keep your function up, that you can get into clinical trials and contribute to finding a cure, and that um, we sort of take the fear out of it, uh, because if we don't take the fear out of it, we're, we're ultimately not going to make progress. Mm -hmm. Which which makes a, a ton, a ton of sense. Um, how, how are you... Um connecting with women and what kind of response are you getting from them? So we're connecting with women in two different ways um, and I encourage all of your listeners um, as others have to um, visit us on the web um, either through Us Against Alzheimer's or directly Women Against Alzheimer's and, and join our We Won't Wait campaign. So we are connecting, we're beginning to connect with women directly um, to join the campaign and um, you know, join us in our policy agenda and our advocacy work. We are also um, doing a lot of outreach as a small organization. One of the best ways for us to leverage our impact is to work through partners. And that is why um, much of our outreach and engagement over the last several months has been in bringing together organizations that already have um, a large constituency focused on women and then we partner with them to uh, get our messages out. Uh, and, um, you know, many of those relationships are symbiotic, but we have care relationships. We have relationships with women who, with women's groups that are working on economic issues. We are working with, um, across diseases uh, on women's health. We are working with organizations that bring women together um, uh, around many kinds of um, uh, uh, social and uh, social issues, um, and we are partnering with a number of caring organizations as well that um, bring expertise to the table around uh, caregiving, and that allows us to both um, connect with organizations that can provide additional information that's practical to the to our our female audience, because we certainly want to be providing. Um, that kind of information as well, but allows us to then have a broader audience around some of our advocacy. Okay, wonderful. Um, is there is there anything that we haven't touched base on that you really feel our audience needs to hear about uh, women against Alzheimer's? You know, I feel like I have touched on it, but the only thing I would say sort of goes back to um, – 
something that we talked about in the beginning of the conversation, and I think it was it was either something that you said or that Trish said, um, and that is that what we want to build with the We Won't Wait campaign um, is uh, an army of warriors. And uh, we know there are a lot of people who are in the thick of it um, and who are either, uh, you know, uh, Pull up because they're they're caregivers or they have mild impairment themselves, or they're worried, uh, as we talked about, about getting the disease. But we really believe, as we've looked across the environment of other efforts where women have have really made a change and uh, said sort of enough is enough, um, that uh, we really hope that working not only uh, with the women's network but also with um, Jason and the uh, Latinos Against Alzheimer's Network with Stephanie Monroe, our leader on African-Americans Against Alzheimer's, and all of our networks under the uh, Us Against Alzheimer's umbrella um, that we really can create a campaign uh, of warriors and make a change. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for uh, for being part of the show, Jill. And I encourage uh, any women out there listening to go to Us Against Alzheimer's and um, sign up for the group. Um, become one of those warriors. Uh, raise the voice. It would be wonderful to hear you. Um, next, I am going to introduce uh, uh, Ginny Vigor. Um, she directs the Patient and Caregiver and Faith Book, or Faith Book, <laughs> Faith Initiatives um, with Us Against Alzheimer's. And um, Ginny brings over 20 years of media and communication experience as a writer, a reporter, and a filmmaker to the organization uh, itself. Jenny was a reporter for the National Public Radio in Los Angeles and also in Washington, D.C., um, prior to uh, joining us against Alzheimer's. So welcome, Jenny. Uh, Lori, it's great to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, looking forward to hearing um, from you, you know, what the patient and caregiver networks are that you're currently leading and what do they look like and um, how can people get involved? Well, I think, um, I mean, my work is, you know, I'm just listening to my colleagues who are um, directing networks, and, and I do as well. I think the patient and caregiver work, I would say, kind of comes under the activist network, um, which, you know, you're really a, a founding member of that network, um, and our connection goes several years back. Um, so the, case, the patient and caregiver work um, that I, I think I'm, I'm most focused on right now is the our Facebook um, caregiver support group, which um, I know you're familiar with, and um, it's a closed uh, caregiver support group, a, a platform for people to you know ask pressing questions, to share information, to vent, which happens a lot. And we've got really wonderful moderators, and Napleton, um, Mara Batonis, um, Loretta Woodward Vini. Um, so some, some great women who are leading that group, uh, which is, uh, has about 5,000 members right now. Um, <clears throat> also working with Greg O'Brien, um, who I, I'm sure you know is the author of On Pluto. He's a journalist, a, a, a storyteller extraordinaire, um, working on a podcast um, uh, that will really highlight his patient voice, um, as it were. Um, and then the other um, big project that I've really just started um, is the A-List 1000, 
Um, and this is something I look forward to letting you, you know, sort of keeping you updated on as, as, um, as I, this work uh, moves forward. But it's going to be an online Alzheimer's and dementia community um, that will inform research and will validate the, the real-life insights of dementia caregivers and those living with dementia. So the, the A-List 1000 will be patients and caregivers, and it's an opportunity for them to inform research, um, to have their experiences validated, um, and to, um, to just to be, to, for researchers also to learn from families you know, who are living with the disease, you know, the biggest challenges, what they care most about with regard to treatments or, and the caregiver experience. So I'm really excited about the, the A-List 1000 um, and that's just getting underway. So I'd say those are the, the three main um, initiatives that I'm working on right now. Wow, that's, I think that that's a, I'm really excited about the, the A-List 1000. I think that that is going to um, just elevate things um, to a whole new level. Which yeah, is, I hope is, so. Which is yeah, wonderful. So. Wonderful uh, to be able to do. Um, aside from, um, you know, raising awareness about Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. um, how do the voices and experiences of of those, you know, diagnosed and their care partners, um, family and friends, you know, how, how's the best way for them to work with you at Us Against Alzheimer's? And, and why are they important to your organization? Well, I mean, the, the, uh, patients or people with Alzheimer's and their caregivers and their families are the, the most powerful advocates, um, whether we're fighting for more research you know, funding or policies related to caregiver support, you know, the people who are experiencing it have, uh, you know, the most credibility, the most powerful voices. I mean, they're certainly not the only ones, but certainly anyone affected by the disease can be part of us against Alzheimer's and we provide opportunities to, to contact members of Congress to, to speak out and take action to, you know, move the ball down the field toward a, toward a prevention or cure. So, you know, there's that kind of, you know, that kind of involvement, um, just individuals um, who, who can be part of it. Um, we also have other opportunities like the A-List 1000. Um, and we also work closely with, um, with patients and, and caregivers to provide opportunities to, to speak to members of Congress directly, for example. Um, my colleague Jason Resendez, who we heard from, recently visited um, key members of Congress with um, an advocate named Daisy Duarte, um, who came to Washington and just was, she, you know, she moved people to tears, the senators, the congressmen that she met with. So there's just really no substitute for that first-person um, story. Um, and so I think that that experience has to inform all of what we do, and we try to provide opportunities for those individuals to be part of the solution. And, and I love that. I um, I think so many times mm-hmm. people who are in the trenches, you know, don't realize the power of one, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. They, they, mm-hmm. they don't Absolutely. realize the power um, and the authenticity of their story and how that can trigger passion mm-hmm. in others 
And um, the ripple effect, just like this disease, has a huge ripple effect. It's not a disease of one. It's mm-hmm. a disease of society. And it, you know, it just ripples out. Um, those stories ripple out. They move people to action. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're empowering that group. Um, can you tell us, too, a little bit about, um, you know, the mm-hmm. clergy against Alzheimer's and how the faith-based mm-hmm. community has has um really done some cool stuff within your organization as well. Yeah, well, you know, I, I we really cover all the bases, I think. Um, you know, we started the Clergy Network is, is, um, is uh, you know, a, a multi-faith national network of, of clergy and, and faith leaders that are, have come together to raise their voices for, you know, in support of families and, and, and to, to Alzheimer's. And then the Faith United Against Alzheimer's Coalition really kind of has stemmed from that, and we started that uh, about a year ago in partnership with the United Methodist Church, um, and we have additional partners, Volunteers of America, Healthcare Chaplaincy Network, Presbyterian Homes. These are, you know, these are big organizations that can can speak out um, and, and just take very powerful action around Alzheimer's. So, you know, I think that 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 faith communities are seeing so much dementia in the pews, in their congregations, and so are really scrambling in, in many cases to take steps to support families. A lot of congregations are doing incredible work as well in a variety of different ways. Um, and so also I think faith leaders are, are just a very powerful voice, and I think, you know, uh, my colleague Jill, Jill Lesser, I mean, they're really focused on, on Alzheimer's as an economic justice issue, and I think it really is a social justice issue and that for faith leaders that resonates and, um, again, and just a very powerful voice that can't be ignored. Um, and they reach a lot of people, so we can, and we can empower a lot of people, we can help a lot of people by uh, enlisting uh, and working with um these faith organizations and, and leaders. Wonderful. Um, and so in order for people to get involved mm-hmm. in either the activist role or the faith community, again, they can go to us on Alzheimer's and connect mm-hmm. with you through that, through that role. Um, anything else that exactly. you want to touch base on there, Ginny? I would just say the one thing I'll mention, the most recent project of the clergy network is the new, um, Leader's Guide for Seasons of Caring, and you probably remember Seasons of Caring published a year ago, a book of interfaith mm-hmm. meditations for Alzheimer's and dementia caregivers. So the Leader's Guide is built on that. Um, it's an ancillary by Dr. Richard Morgan, just a brilliant, brilliant man and, and, and compassionate, you know, pastor, and it's guidance for support groups that are based on Seasons of Caring. So it's a 10-week support group. Um, that any community, any congregation um, can immediately put that into action. So that's our just published a, a month ago. So very excited about that. Oh, very cool. And that's it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lori. Wonderful. Well, thank you. I'm going to go ahead and um, pull George and Trish back in to the conversation. And um, boy, the two of you must be awfully proud of what you've built in the last five and a half years and and all that you've accomplished in really a very short period of time. You are really changing the face and the direction of the disease, of research, of how families cope, um, and really pulling people together. 
Um, one of one of your groups, so that we weren't able to have on today, just because of of scheduling conflict, was um, the um, African Americans, you know, against Alzheimer's. And um, Trish, do you want to just speak to a couple couple words about that, if people want to get involved regarding that again, program? Again, that's under uh, uh, you know us against Alzheimer's dot mm-hmm. org, and and there it is, you know. Um, African Americans um, and other Blacks are um, are twice as likely to have Alzheimer's uh, as as um, Caucasians, and uh, you know women are two thirds uh, two thirds of those five and a half million are women, um, and it's, you know Hispanics are what is it one and two one and a half times as likely. I mean, but but we have to remember that this is not a natural uh, function of aging. I mean, there are 250,000, that's a lot of people, mm-hmm. who are early onset, and that's, you know, anywhere from 40 to 64, 65. So, yeah, I, I mean, we just, I'm, what, what a group, huh, that you've talked to. I mean, all dedicated to this, to this cause. I can't tell you how honored we are and happy we are that you have had us on, Lori. I mean... Well, you're just doing fantastic work. One of the things that we didn't mention that we, we need to give a plug for is your your Alzheimer's talks that you do. Um, because, it, you know, they yeah. are just uh, a wonderful um, resource and such a uh, such a variety. I guess we did touch on them a little bit. Um, but, we also have researchers against Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm looking to to get in touch with Tony Orlando, if anyone knows him, so that we can have you know tie a purple ribbon around your old oak tree. I want I want to see papers. Uh, I mean, ribbons of purple throughout this country, so mm-hmm. the silent voice will no longer be silent. Yeah, maybe we have to tap into Prince, you know, his <laughs> legacy. I think we have a better shot at Tony Orlando. Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> I'm from Minnesota, and it was uh, quite oh, the quite gosh. the purple festival here with uh, the sky. Not only did the sky literally turn purple with a storm, uh, but our our bridges and our buildings. Uh, it's and it's still going wow. on. It's it's quite. Um, been really something, been really something. Um, George, do you have um, anything that you would like to wrap up with, anything that we haven't discussed in this last two hours? Well, um, I would just say that we have uh, every year, uh, but uh, it's grown every year, a national summit mm-hmm. uh, on Alzheimer's. It will be t- September 27 to 29. It will involve a great deal of focus on the disparate impact of this disease on women and minorities, but it will also bring together all of the stakeholders that are so essential uh, to getting us to uh, a means of uh, prevention and treatment by 2025, which is our national goal, indeed a national goal that's been embraced by the G8 and the, and the World Health Organization. Uh, so that uh, also entails an out-of-the-shadows dinner uh, at which uh, Laura Bush is going to keynote and where we're honoring Nancy Pelosi and Eli Lilly for their championship in quite different ways uh, for the fight back against uh, Alzheimer's. But my last note is just to say how proud I am of the team that you've talked to today. Uh, And they, uh, while as articulate and as devoted and committed as they are, they represent a team of another 20 people uh, who really uh, are the people that are driving this effort globally 
uh, under the rubric of Us Against Alzheimer's, Leaders Engaged in Alzheimer's Disease, and the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's. So it's a set of networks and coalitions, and as I said earlier, an analogy to Facebook, uh, that work through cooperative mechanisms, collaborative mechanisms, uh, to bring the power of a wide variety of people together uh, in, to, 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 to get at this disease. We named our organization Us Against Alzheimer's for a purpose because it's going to take all of us to do this. And so at the outset, when you talked initially about your own efforts, this collaborative, the need collaboratively to bring everybody together with all their disparate voices, all their different inflections, all their different experiences, uh, into a series of networks and mechanisms where they can express their uh, their particular experience with the disease. Uh, we're trying to do that with us against Alzheimer's, and we're making a lot of progress. Uh, and thank you for recognizing that. But uh, we are not yet even at the beginning of the beginning, and the great fight season. And you're doing um, your role. We're doing our role, and it's going to take all of us to do it. That's again the power of one, like you say. Yep. It's and it all do something. Yeah, it's just uh, kind of lighting that spark in everybody and getting them to believe that they can make a difference. And, and when we join forces together, it is just uh, incredible how fast we can get that ball rolling and change course with things. Um, do you have any plans um, for any more kind of subgroups that you have? Um, in the in the next couple of years to roll out, or are you feeling pretty comfortable that you've kind of covered the know. gamut? We keep going. With a little engine that has to. Mm-hmm. We, we've had a number of suggestions, uh, and it's all a matter of, of, of financial constraints because the demand uh, uh, from different segments of society to do this, artists against Alzheimer's, there are so many musicians and, uh, and uh, visual artists uh, uh, and other kinds of artistic expression, all of those artists are beginning to express themselves in a wide variety of ways. And so bringing that whole creative community uh, into a, a network would be powerful. Some people, not not so jokingly, have suggested pets against Alzheimer's because dogs have proven Indeed. to be a calming influence, a calming influence on those with dementia. So there, there are any number of different ways to shape national networks, even in the international networks, around a particular aspect uh, of how to attack this disease and how to bring more people into it in ways in which they identify their experience with the disease in, in disparate ways. So, no, I, I, the only constraint in creating another half dozen networks uh, is simply um, uh, uh, financial limitations. So, as you said earlier, what can you do? You can contribute to Us Against Alzheimer's. Go to usagainstalzheimers.org and donate, because indeed uh, it is only uh, uh, financial constraints uh, that is preventing us from continuing uh, to develop more ways to uh, touch upon the segments of society uh, that are being affected by this disease. Well, uh, again, a kudos to you and your vision um, and um, your ability to to pull together uh, the team that you have. Um, and not everybody can do that, as you well know, and you, you've done it beautifully and are so well-respected um, throughout the world um, and have really made a, a name and, uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a hand that reaches out um, to all which, uh, again, is, is not something that happens with all organizations, but it's, uh, uh, your organization has a, um, 
an aura about it of of just really being truly collaborative um, at all levels. And that's one of the things that I, I love is an individual versus the CEO. You know, everyone's here together, um, joining forces and um, in, in being creative in their own ways. Uh, you know, the thing about pets or artists and stuff, it's just, it is, it's tapping into skills and letting know, letting people know that what they do matters. I don't care if, if they want to knit shawls, you know, for people that can help and that can be powerful and it can be a great message. You know, there's, there's nothing that can't work if we, if we just try, um, you know, we can all make a difference in our own way. And I think those sparks of creativity, um, get people thinking, well, gosh, if they did that, then maybe I could do this. You know, it takes the scary out of it. So thank you for taking the scary out of the disease um, with your with your vision and um, with your organization. Uh, again, just to respect you all so much in terms of what you're doing. Um, and I'm going to throw something out there, that, and I probably should do it off the side, but I'm going to do it in public anyways. But um, if for your conference you were ever interested in doing um, a screening of the movie His Neighbor Phil, please reach out to me. Uh, it's a very powerful, and it can get people to dig into their pockets because it really shows what a family goes through, what a community goes through. Um, people laugh and cry together, um, but it might be a way to be able to um, raise some funds for your mission. Um, so do you just, have access to it? Yes, I do. I'm a platinum sponsor of that. So, um, well, and, and so um, it's just uh, just another thought. Anyway, we can we can work together uh, for the greater good. Um, you know, sign me up. I'm there. So, <laughs> but, thank you very much, Lori, for hosting so many of our uh, quite extraordinary team today. Uh, we appreciate the enormous uh, amount of time you've given us and the opportunity to to speak to your audience. Well, thank you. You guys have a wonderful year, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey a lot easier.